This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Commercial content, to, to my colleague, is really specified. Um, there are criteria in the bill, so there's a, a clear sandbox. It's very precise. Uh, it's about the revenues. It's about the fact that you can find uh, the same content on, two, uh, on, for example, YouTube or Spotify. It's about codes that could be encrypted in, in some of that, that content, Mr. Speaker. So I did uh, meet with, uh, with them. And honestly, those were fascinating conversations. Some of them were 18 years old, 19, 20, 21. Like, they're all over the world. They do things incredible. And, and I love it. But it's not about them. It's about those streamers contributing to the Canadian culture. That's it. Since the introduction of Bill C-11, the Online Streaming Act that serves as the government's follow-up to Bill C-10, Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez has insisted that he heard the concerns about regulating user-generated content and he, to quote, fixed it. Yet the reality is that anyone who takes the time to read the bill knows that this simply isn't the case. The so-called sandbox is more like a Sahara desert with an approach that opens the door to CRTC regulation of user-generated content. The concerns with the government's approach have started to attract the attention of Canada's digital-first creators, who fear the plans could lead to lost revenues and reduced promotion worldwide of what has become one of the country's most successful cultural exports. Darcy Michael is a BC-based comedian with millions of TikTok subscribers and a globally successful podcast. Last week, he appeared before the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage to warn about the risks of Bill C-11 and to call for reform. He joins me on the podcast to tell his story of success online and his fears about what the bill would mean for Canadian digital-first creators. Darcy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. No, I'm really glad you're taking the time out to join me. You know, as you know, Bill C-11, that the former C-10, heard from many interested stakeholders, including a lot of the longstanding cultural lobby groups, some academics, and even some experts. But I think it's fair to say that largely missing from the conversation have been creators themselves, particularly digital first creators, which is somewhat ironic given the impact that it has on digital first creators. And this whole thing is about trying to deal with the, the online environment. And I think it's fair to say that uh, as we record this earlier this week, you started to change that dynamic a bit with an appearance before the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, where alongside Urbi Roy, you succeeded in providing some insight into your world, into the world of digital first creators. Can you get us started with your story and, and what brought you to have a, an influential TikTok account and a top rated podcast? Yeah, thanks so much. I, you know, this is the last thing I thought I'd be doing this week, uh, but uh, it kind of came came ahead. I am, uh, you know, I've worked in traditional media for 15 years as a comedian and an actor and a writer. I uh, and you know, like I was quite successful. I had a sitcom. I've had multiple stand up specials. Uh, one streaming on Crave now. And uh, when COVID hit my industry shut down like everybody's uh, and I just was you know like I knew I needed to pivot somehow and so I pivoted to TikTok because I had had uh, I'd been using the app as a viewer for about six months uh, I had set up an account for my dog I, and then I was like I was just starting to notice the power of the app and the power of finding an audience and so I put up a clip from my stand-up special and someone that's you know like I've worked like I said in traditional media so when my stand-up special aired 
airs on CBC or Comedy Network, you don't get to choose your audience. It's whoever happens to randomly be picking it. Whereas TikTok's algorithm is quite smart and it drives the videos that it thinks people are going to enjoy towards them. So, you know, like I, the first video I was doing was talking about being a gay, a gay dad. And so all of a sudden the people were, that were watching this clip were either queer parents or kids with queer parents. And I was finding an audience I had never really reached before. And so overnight the video got a million views and I was like, wow, this is interesting. Like there's some, some, you know, like dynamic here that I'm not used to. And, uh, so I just kind of like honed in on it and really learned the app and started to grow, grow my audience. And it's only been 15 months on the app uh, since I started that account, since I posted that first video. Uh, and now we're at 2.7 million followers. We get 40 to 60 million views a month. Uh, because of TikTok, my podcast is now, you know, it's typical for it to trend in the top 100 comedy podcasts around the world. Uh, you know, like all my other social media accounts have blown up. My stand-up special is streamed more. My album's bought more. Like the trickle effect of the success on that app is, uh, you know, like we can see the growth everywhere else because of it. Uh, and so then uh, from that, I was asked to speak on Monday or Tuesday in the house. Uh, and it was really interesting to me because, you know, I've pivoted so quickly and so so hard that Bill C-11, when I started to read about it, I was like, whoa, 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 like this, this is a great bill for parts of the industry. I will admit that, you know, like I even said in my, in my testimony, I'm a member of ACTRA and I believe that there are some great things in this bill, but that one section needs a very strong amendment. That's remarkable to hear that this has happened as quickly as it has. Uh, I think it's pretty stunning. You know, is, is there something that, that you did specifically even on TikTok for those that, that want to kind of build that? I mean, how do you go from like zero to millions yeah. in, in, you know, in, in I, just I, over a year? All humbleness aside, I'm very funny, you know, uh, and I think that it, I think. I hit at the right time for a lot of people because you got to think of where we were mentally and emotionally about a year ago. Uh, it was a very dark place in Canada with COVID and I, people were wanting joy. And I really, really focused on making sure whatever content we were putting out was just making people feel good. We talk a lot about mental health. You know, I have ADHD and I was late diagnosed in life. Uh, so we really try to draw attention to that because a lot of people don't realize how complicated ADHD can be and its side effects and uh so but we try to do it in a comedic way um and it just really it really hit with people obviously i think too that you know like a lot of other creators discounted the age range on tiktok everyone thought it was just kids on there like just doing dances and stuff and i had noticed from our dog's account when i went into the stats of my followers it was like wow like my followers are between the ages of like 30 and 50, uh, like the majority of them. And I was like, okay, that means I don't have to, you know, I, I don't have to think I'm talking down to kids when I'm doing these videos. Like I can just talk to people and the right people will find it. And, uh, and that's the power of the algorithm. That's the power of the algorithm. It is. And that is why companies like Bell and Rogers and Telus want their stake in it because they can't afford to beat the algorithm. Is that, okay, no, too, I want to, is that too cheeky? <laughs> well, 
Well, you're not going to find uh, me objecting much to criticizing the big telecom companies on this podcast. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I want to come back. I want to come back to the the algorithm and that issue of discoverability because, of course, that's been a, a really central part of this legislation. But before we do that, you know, so, so millions of followers on TikTok's notable. But you know, to borrow, I guess, from Jerry Maguire, you know, sh- show me the money. So, so many in the industry will say that's great, but you know, how do you generate revenues? Is it sufficient Absolutely. to make to make a living as a creator and you know so how do you respond to that uh it not only is it is it possible it's beyond what i would have ever imagined and you know like with one of the things we did early on and uh much to my chagrin at the time was launching just a simple merch store uh with references to you know some of my comedy or uh, you know selling t-shirts and sweaters the t-shirt or the sweater i'm wearing today i tolerate you as one of our merches i uh, and that like I was really hesitant because it cost money to set it all up and we were a couple thousand dollars invested and then we launched it at Sunday night at seven o'clock and by nine o'clock we had doubled our investment and uh you know nine months later I think uh I think last year you know it was well into the six figures just from the merch store uh so there's that side of things there's you know companies pay us to have their products in the backgrounds of videos there's product placement the same as it works in tv uh and then we also do advertisements on our channel and I treat it the same as if, you know, when you're watching network television and there's a commercial break, it's the same as when you're watching my channel. There's going to be a commercial break every seven to eight videos. And I think it's fair because, A, the commercials that we do are in the same tone as the rest of our content. We're in 100% creative control. We, you know, film them and write them and produce them and everything like that. Uh, so it's that side of it has been great. But there's also, like I said, the trickle economics of it is, you know, like my stand-up special. I my royalties are higher because of it. My album sales are, uh, you know, I would say my album sales are probably 600% higher than they were the year I released the album, like three or four years ago, uh, because people want, you know, you leave them wanting more. And so they go and find it. And so there's, there's so many different avenues, but it's definitely been life-changing for us. My husband just left his corporate job that he had for 10 years and he was, he was making ridiculously good money. And we were like, you know what, I think it's time you leave even we just do this full time. That's a, a truly, uh, I mean, a remarkable story. And, and, you know, it really highlights sort of a nice mix of both creativity and entrepreneurship. Anyone who visits your website sees all of these different things. You know, is that how where you see things headed for those that that move into into the digital world where you use the large platforms to build audiences and then find a myriad of ways to engage? Absolutely. And I think it's what the audience wants as well. You know, like, I don't think like the audience knows when they're buying a shirt at, uh, you know, some band's arena tour, how many people are going to get a dollar from that sale before the band sees it. Whereas they know if they're buying it from us, like the profits going to us. And uh, I think when you look at things like Patreon and Twitch and YouTube, uh, people are willing to pay directly to the artists for their for their talent for their creativity uh you know like we've got friends that uh, and you know like same with even only fans like people that are you know like that's changed the that industry by giving power to the performers and TikTok is doing the same thing the reason the record labels are so mad is because you've got these artists blowing up on TikTok so you know there's they'll put a 15 second clip of their song the next thing you know they're in the top 100 billboard charts and they don't have representation 
creation. So 100% of that money is going back to that artist. And we know the record labels have held musicians against the wall for years. You know, musicians are lucky to make 5 to 10% of their album sales. Whereas, you know, when you remove the labels or the networks and you go direct to consumer, it's no different than, uh, than what Amazon is for, for shopping. It's interesting that you raised the the music industry because they've been one of the lead lobbyists for some of this legislation uh, on this kind of the traditional basis. You know, you've talked you've talked a lot about your audience already. You know, do you how much do you know about it? You talked a bit about the age. How much of it is domestic, and and notably, how much outside of Canada? Because we heard from a committee this week that you know, somewhere ninety percent perhaps of the audience for many of the Canadian, whether it's TikTokers or YouTubers or Twitch streamers, comes from outside the country. It's a remarkable Canadian cultural export. Do you have a sense that the same is the case for you as well? Absolutely. I can tell you right now that uh, like 18% of our followers are uh, Canadian. Uh, 82% are female, 18% are male, uh, age range. I got to find the age range. Oh, it's somewhere else. But, uh, we, we get all of, we get some really detailed analytics from both Instagram and TikTok. Uh, but it is, and that's what I was saying. I, I believe I said it, it during my testimony that like, I am Canadian content. I don't need to prove any more of that. I'm exporting more Canadian content than CBC and CTV have in years. I just from my channel because I'm reaching, you know, millions of people outside of Canada and showing them what our world looks like. When you take, you know, people like yourself and so and so many others that are finding that success, I think that's where where people start landing. And I think hopefully soon realizing that this represents an, an incredible cultural export. And, and we, we heard actually that Canada leads on a per capita basis in the world in terms of that from an export perspective. Yet it seems oftentimes that the policy frameworks have yet to catch up with that that changing environment. Well, and I, I genuinely think it's that they just don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand how the technology works. Uh, you know, that one MP uh, showed it in his own questioning that he just didn't understand how the algorithms work or how any of this stuff works. They just think that there's, you know, it's better to put the CRTC in charge of it. And it's not. User, we're in the world of user-generated content. Everything we do, like when you're buying something from Amazon or from any website, you're looking at the reviews. You're relying on that user-generated community to help you with your purchases, to help you book your vacations, everything about that. And so why should entertainment be any different? You mentioned the the role of CRTC, and I think you were you were pretty direct uh, as part of that discussion at, at at the committee, where you indicated that you didn't want the CRTC involved in regulating social media. Indeed, the CRTC, you know, despite the go- yeah, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but yeah, no, it's an archaic uh, organization that you know it has <laughs> it shoots itself in the foot all the time. Just this merger they announced this week is everything against what the CRTC is supposed to be. Uh, I, so yeah, I, I'm not a big fan. Yeah, no, no, neither am I. And certainly on that that merger, the the Roger Shaw merger, where they they indicated that this was ben- there were benefits to Canadian consumers, and then <laughs> as far as I could tell, could not name a single one. No, uh, at best no. it was status quo. Uh, they may find themselves involved in these issues because the government claims that social media is excluded from the bill, but uh, as I've 
been saying it, it that that claim almost depends on people not reading the bill because the reality is that it is open for regulation. Did you talked about how your stuff has been discovered in in remarkable ways in a short period of time? What are your thoughts of you know engaging a regulator, the government, some uh, external party that might start playing a role and get what what gets prioritized in people's TikTok feeds or or on YouTube? Well, I think we're really going down a slippery slope of free speech there because it, you know, depending on what government is in power, that government can decide to stifle anything, you know, that they deem uh, not Canadian. Uh, and who, what is that definition, by the way? The CRTC has never really been able to prove what is Canadian content and what isn't. And uh, I think it's just a, uh, it's a logistical nightmare for them to think that they can come in. But the other thing, the other you know, creepy, not creepy, but the part that bugs me the most is the places that are registered for Canadian content, Bell Media, Rogers, TELUS, they'll, that's just giving them priority to, you know, 40, 50% of the algorithm. And that means they don't have to, you know, right now, if Bell wants to get uh, their commercials out onto TikTok, they have to pay TikTok. And this way, it's their workaround. Oh, no, we're Canadian content. So now we don't have to pay you. It's just so complicated. All I, they just have to take that one section out. In a place where you know, based on, on your experience and the experience of others, it, you know, it doesn't sound like there's a compelling case that there is something that is in need of fixing. In fact, what you end up with is prioritizing certain players that may have struggled to succeed in this area, or perhaps even worse, concerns that prioritizing Canadian feeds in Canada could have the perverse effect of deprioritizing them outside the country. The algorithm looks, of course, not just at what you click, but also what you don't click. And if people don't want that content, it's there because a regulator said it needs to be there. The message to the YouTubes or Instagrams or TikToks may well be this isn't content people like that much. It gets shown less in the rest of the world. And you just indicated that such a huge percentage of your audience is, of course, outside of the jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and that, that would, I presume, be true for many. Uh, you know, I, I do need to ask in terms of the, the CanCon side of it. So, you know, the, the established players have the kind of checklist and they know how to tick the boxes to get certified as CanCon. You know, I, and I mean, I think I know this answer, but you know, in your experience, is there anything that suggests that, you know, the digital first creators such as yourself can kind of neatly fit themselves into this same kind of box? You said you're CanCon, but this whole certification side, does TikTok ask these questions? Is there, you know, is it obvious how this would take place? No, I have no idea. I genuinely don't even, wouldn't even know where to begin and wouldn't necessarily know if that would be, if it's a per video thing, like every time I want to post something that I want it to be deemed CanCon, do I have to apply or do I have to just apply once as a creator, be deemed Canadian content and can do whatever I want? There's no... And that's the other thing, like, we're talking about, you know, millions of users in Canada. How are they all supposed to apply? Who's going to be checking these? Who's going to be dealing with this mass amount of uh, creators that need to be approved? Like, I just don't see, I don't see how it could be done. The, the truth is no country has tried to do it. And I think there's good reasons for why that is. And, right. You know, there's there certainly can be a role for this in say, curated services and Netflix, but bringing it into uh, into a user generated content world is something very different. Part of this is you know, from a government's perspective and from some of the lobby groups is to try to drive new revenues to help create content. You know, to what extent, especially for 
the, you know, the, your current iteration around podcasts and, and TikTok and the like, is there government money that's been out there for you? Or is this the sort of thing that you can develop the online presence and the opportunities are there and there hasn't been that that need or even perhaps that availability to find funds to tap into? Uh, I haven't been, uh, I haven't actively sought it uh, for years because like I mentioned, you know, being a comedian, uh, comedy isn't a recognized art form in Canada. So the idea that we, uh, we don't get access to the same kind of grants uh, or CMF funding or anything like that uh, has kind of just prevented me from ever researching it. But from my understanding, there's nothing out there to support us in that side. Like, I don't think if I was starting a podcast i could apply for grants to get the equipment or anything like that now digital first creators haven't been as i mentioned off the top a big part of the policy debate do you see that changing obviously you've started down the path of of, of starting to to make that change but you know do you see more of that or do you see some real challenges in terms of bringing people who uh, haven't necessarily been associated together in this way suddenly now expecting them to you know appear before committees jump and appear before the crtc it, it feels like a pretty big ask to bring some of these groups together. But do you see some of this changing as, as policy comes forward that may have real implications for uh, people's livelihoods? I've, I've spoken to a lot of creators that had no idea about what we were in for. Uh, and obviously it, it affects our bottom line. It affects our ability to pay our bills. So I can, I, I definitely know that the interest is there for uh, as this continues to be debated, but I also, you know, it was very clear from my testimony that the liberals and shockingly the NDP weren't very interested in hearing what I had to say. Uh, but I'm, I'm definitely game to continue the conversation conversations and continue asking answering their questions and informing them because I definitely like that's I don't think they're doing this in a ill will kind of way I just simply don't think they can grasp how the technology works if C11 isn't the solution uh, are there reforms or changes that you would like to see the the government prioritize are there challenges in the relationship that you've seen with these large platforms that uh, where new regulations might might may, might make life easier for creators i definitely do i think that there is uh i think part of the the problem that we have lost is when it comes to you know like we know we've grown up with the internet now uh, and it's been such a fast changing industry we've stopped teaching critical thinking uh, and i i definitely think the government needs to start campaigning about you know like teaching people that what you read on the internet doesn't necessarily mean it's true or what you see even nowadays uh, and i think we it comes back to education i think we need to uh, you know, there's extremism on Canadian internet. We we have to put some sort of things in place to help, you know, tone down the rhetoric of hate in this country. But I think it starts with education. I think it starts with, you know, teaching people how to critically look at things on the internet. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. I mean, and certainly there's been a lot of talk about the need to address online harms. And as part of, some, uh, as part of that, uh, making people more digitally aware and digitally educated about some of these issues. You know, let me conclude with this. There, there is clearly an element for those kinds of issues. But on the cultural side, you'll have many groups saying, well, no, we need these large platforms to pay in. Um, do, you, do you support these kinds of payments? Do you see a, a, a way to, 
to sort of meet that objective of, of trying to bring money into the system, but at the same time, trying to avoid some of the harms that you've identified uh, as a digital, as someone who's been so successful on digital platforms? I think that... I think that the the creator needs to be paid before the government. I, and so with these, yes, you know, TikTok should be paying. They, there should be a creator fund in Canada uh, because they are making money off of advertisements uh, while people are using the app and using us, our entertainment for free. Uh, the same way YouTube, YouTube has a really aggressive payment plan with its creators. Uh, I don't necessarily think that they, I don't think that TikTok and YouTube and Instagram should be paying into to the CRTC or the CMF fund, absolutely not. Uh, yes, Netflix, yes, Apple, like people that are making film and television should be paying into that and they should be making Canadian content. The idea of trying to lump TikTok and uh, Instagram and social media into the same business, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, like people have successful Instagram accounts for their restaurants. That's got nothing to do with film and television. You know, like I, I just don't, I, I think the reach is just a little broad right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's the point that a lot of people have been trying to make, not opposition to reform from a no. broadcasting act perspective, but it sounds like opposition to this very broad scope that the government has adopted. With Absolutely. This I just, I'm just, uh, all I'm saying is get specific. Don't leave this, you know, for someone to interpret uh, in a different way when the next government comes into power or, or even this government. I don't know what they actually plan to do with it, but I, I believe that the Canadian film and television industry uh, should be supported by by the streamers. Absolutely. The idea of bringing a completely different business into into the CRTC makes absolutely no sense to me. Okay. Well, you know what, that, that, that kind of perspective and these kind of voices were simply entirely absent the last time the bill went through the House Bill C-10. And hopefully this is the start of ensuring that uh, that mistake won't be repeated as the, this legislation proceeds through the House and uh, in the coming weeks, one would think into committee. So Darcy, it's an important, yours is a really important voice. And thank you for lending it a bit on this podcast as well. Oh, thanks so much for reaching out. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.